Welcome to Careers Unwrapped, where we delve into real-life career stories from successful people who've been through it all, the ups and the downs. We'll get their raw, honest, actionable advice and be the careers talk they wish they'd had when they started out. As someone who has had a varied career, from soldier to salesman, expedition leader to entrepreneur, he knows firsthand that your career doesn't always lead you where you expect it to. Here's your host, Mark Fawcett. So hello and welcome to Careers Unwrapped. I'm your host, Mark Force, and with me today is Tessa Clark. Now, Tessa is a CEO, a founder, an investor, and a mentor as well. She is now and has been for some time on a mission to solve the climate crisis by reducing global waste through Olio. And Olio is an app which helps people give away and share household items and food locally instead of throwing them away or wasting them. And so far, over 110 million portions of food have been shared instead of wasted, and there's over 7 million members. She also has an MBA. She's given a TED talk on the subject of helping the climate by sharing. And she was also recently named as Verve Clico's Bold Woman of the Year, which is an award that celebrates women in industry who are really disrupting their fields. And there's so much more as well to that. So, Tessa, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I think it would be really good to just perhaps start off with a brief summary of the Olio journey. Why did you start it? What does it do? And what stage have you taken it to so far? Yes, certainly. So Olio started eight years ago through a seemingly inconsequential moment in my life when I was living and working overseas with my family. And we were moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men told me I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. And we might touch on this a little bit later on, but I'm a farmer's daughter originally. So I have a pathological hatred for food waste and was not prepared to chuck perfectly good food in the bin. So instead, I set off on a bit of a wild goose chase to try and find someone to give my food to. And sadly, I failed miserably. So I went back to my apartment and was not to be defeated. So when the removal men were not looking, I sneaked the non-perishable foods into the bottom of my packing boxes. And at that moment, I thought, I'm probably criminal offence, smuggling cross borders. There has to be a better solution to the problem of my surplus food than this. And that was where the idea of an app that connects people with their neighbours so they can give away rather than throw away their spare food came from. And as you touched on in the introduction, we've gone from that idea in my kitchen to today, we're now a global movement of over 7 million people. And we've had food and other household items successfully shared in 63 countries so far. And what we're most proud of is the environmental impact of that. So over 100 million portions of food have been shared, and that is equivalent to taking over 450 million car miles off the road. And we've also saved over 17 billion litres of water. That's a staggering achievement so far, and obviously so much more still to go. But to help unwrap your career, let's roll it back to the beginning. You mentioned there that you were brought up as part of a farming family. I know that you then went to one of the best, the most elite universities in terms of Cambridge University. So how did those two parts of your development and your growing up, how did they influence what you think and what you do now? So I've realized that actually my upbringing, which for a long time was something that I hid from others. And in many ways, I spent quite a lot of my life sort of running away from my rural roots. I've realized retrospectively just how important my upbringing has been in terms of shaping and influencing who I am today. I should stress that 
when I was a kid, I was one of those kids who never knew what they wanted to do when I grew up. And I found it really, really frustrating. And I envied the other kids who seemed to know what they wanted to do. And I think part of the problem for me was that because I grew up in a really rural environment, I didn't have that many role models at all. I sort of obviously knew of the farming world and perhaps maybe being a doctor or a lawyer or accountant or perhaps working in the fire brigade or something, but I didn't have much access to role models or inspiration beyond that. So yeah, I kind of really just did not know what I wanted to do when I grew older. But what I did do is I decided to try and achieve the very best that I could in the circumstances in which I found myself. And I was very lucky. I won an assisted place. So this was a government financed place at a boarding school. And my parents made enormous sacrifices for our education. So we were always brought up being told that sort of our education was the most important thing. So I really kind of threw myself into school and trying to be the best that I could there. And it was that attitude that enabled me to get into Cambridge, still none the wiser really as to kind of what I wanted to do when I grew up. In terms of what I studied there, I studied social and political sciences because I'd done English history and economics and general studies at A-level. And whilst I enjoyed all of them, I wasn't sufficiently passionate about any one of them to spend the next three years of my life drilling deep into that subject. Whereas something like social and political sciences, that was sociology, social psychology, politics, philosophy, I loved the variety of that. And I loved really kind of the intersection of humanity and technology and the environment and many more things that were covered as part of that course. I still, once I graduated from Cambridge, was none the wiser as to what I wanted to do. And so in sort of continuation of that theme of doing what society deemed was a successful thing, I went on to become a strategy consultant, which was something that to me felt like it would give me a great insight into lots of different industries and lots of different types of jobs. And Cambridge itself as a university, can you put your finger on, aside from the course and the study you did there, what did that establishment overall do for you? What did you take away from it? Lots of friendships that I still have to this day and just a really fun and fantastic experience alongside an enormous amount of hard work was an equally enormous amount of partying and having fun. So that was great. I do think that... Cambridge has an incredible reputation and I was therefore very lucky to be able to benefit from that and leverage that. So for example, certainly back then, and I very much hope that this has changed since then, but back then, a lot of the strategy consulting firms, for example, would only really recruit from Oxbridge. And so that Cambridge education enabled me to take that next step in my career. And so you moved into consulting roles. And then ultimately after that, you moved into very tech-linked roles. How did the farmer's daughter choose consulting and technology as the route forward? Yeah. So consulting was very much because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I felt that consulting would give me an opportunity to work in lots of different industries and also to get exposure to lots of different functions within different businesses. So for someone who didn't know what they wanted to do, it felt like a great stepping stone career. And I hoped that it would help me figure out what I really wanted to do. 
I think the reality is that after three years in consulting, I was very clear that I didn't want to continue being a consultant and just being focused very much on that strategy piece. I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to do something. I knew that I wanted to implement all these brilliant strategies that I had been part of working on. And so it was very clear to me after three years of being a consultant that I needed to move out of consulting, but it was not at all clear to me what industry I should move into or even what function. And I was very fortunate actually that someone who had worked with me at BCG had moved over to EMAP, which at the time was a FTSE 100 media company. They just set up a digital division and he asked me if I would be interested in joining them. And so that was the first time I realized the benefit actually of not having a super prescriptive, super clear career path, because it then meant that I was very open to new opportunities, things that I could never have dreamt of or imagined or even thought of. And I can remember that then enabled me to move into media. And then after a bit of time in the digital division, I then moved across and took on a general management role. And that role was as a publishing director of a magazine business. And at the time, I can remember thinking, wow, I absolutely love this role. I had no idea that this role existed. I could never have imagined it. And it was only through being open-minded, opportunistic, following opportunities when they came across my path that I have found myself in this place. Now, I'm sure we'll come on and talk about this a little bit later on. There are some significant downsides as well of not sort of planning out your career more than I did, but that certainly was one of the upsides. And then once I was at EMAP and working in media, it became very, very clear to me that old media, so print magazines, television and radio, which are the businesses that EMAP was in, it was very, very clear that digital was going to come and completely disrupt all of those sectors. And I knew that I was the type of person who actually really thrives on change and disruption. I like the intellectual challenge of figuring out what the new business models and ways of working are going to be. And it was also very clear to me that where there's growth, there's opportunity for you. And so I knew that I needed to get myself into the digital part of the world. And similarly, within EMAP, I started off in the consumer division. So working on lots of sexy and glamorous consumer-facing media brands. But actually, I could see that the real growth opportunity was in the B2B brand. So these were brands that were the media brand, for example, for the retail industry or for the healthcare industry or for the construction industry. And it was very, very clear that that's where all the growth was happening. And so I really focused on following the growth. And so it's interesting there because the business you're in was obviously being disrupted by technology a lot. And that has killed off many businesses over the last 20 years, undoubtedly continue to do so if they don't keep up. But individually, you personally saw that as an opportunity actually to become a disruptor rather than to face your work, your job being damaged or lost by others. So you moved then into starting to become a disruptor. And let's just then step it forward to the start point, the nucleus, if you want, of Olio. You mentioned the inspiration of it was around when you were moving house. But what took it from there to actually saying, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to create a technology. I'm going to start a business. How were those steps taken? So there's a really important point just before me founding 
polio, which was a really prolonged period of time of about five years where I was still doing very well in my corporate career. I had a CV that headhunters loved and it looked good on paper, but I was very fortunate to be attending various leadership courses and events. And I would listen to all these people talking on the stage, sharing their incredibly inspiring stories about they had how they had built business X, Y, or Z. And I found myself being so inspired by them and then reflect on myself and just feeling profoundly uninspired by myself and what I was doing. And over that five-year period, I got increasingly frustrated about being uninspired by myself. And so I knew that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but the problem was I had no idea what. And I wasted several years wandering around thinking, I wish I had an idea, but I don't have an idea. And so I couldn't get started. I've now retrospectively realized that if you want to do something entrepreneurial, you need to forget about having an idea. You need to open your eyes up and really, really look at the world around you and identify the problems that you care about that need fixing. So I would have got to entrepreneurship much faster if I had looked for problems rather than waited for an idea. So it was really through that moving experience, that was when I first encountered this problem, even on a micro scale, but this problem of food waste. And the first thing that I did was to research that problem of food waste and try and find out if it was anything that was affecting more people than myself. And to cut a long story short, did some desk research and discovered that food waste is one of the largest problems facing humanity today. So that definitely gave me the courage and conviction to sort of continue looking in this area of food waste. But the thing is, it didn't mean to say that just because it's a large problem on paper, that's a problem that anyone cares about. And so the next thing that my co-founder Sasha and I did was to do some market research to find out if anyone cared about the problem of food waste. And we found that one in three people told us that they were physically pained, throwing away perfectly good food. So that was fantastic. But it didn't mean to say that they would do what we hoped people would do via the Olio app, which was connect with strangers in real life to share food. And how we tested that hypothesis was we invited a small group of people who didn't know each other to join a WhatsApp group. And for two weeks, we said that they could use that WhatsApp group to share spare food if they had any. And that proof of concept worked. People told us, we absolutely love this idea of connecting to share food instead of throwing it away. You really do need to build an app for that. And that was the point at which we then had the conviction to invest our life savings at that point in time in building an app. And you mentioned what you were feeling like in the roles before you started it. Are you someone who is quite self-analytical, self-critical even, and do really think about what you should be doing as much and, and sort of doubt yourself? I would say I'm very self-aware, but I'm not very self-critical. And I don't have a massive inner saboteur because I can just see that that is an enormous sort of waste of time. So it's got sort of an enormous energy sink. And I just, so long as I know that I'm showing up every single day doing the best that I possibly can, what more can I do? And so that's what I really focus on is taking action. And in particular, when you're wanting to start something, I think a lot of people are very paralyzed. They're afraid to take that first step. Perhaps they have got that inner saboteur. 
And that first step is made up in their mind to be this enormous leap off of a cliff that they have to take. And the reality is that's just not true. First of all, you just need to tell your inner saboteur to shut up and go away. And then you just need to take a step. And it's a baby step. It's the one small thing that I can do today that will maybe take me five minutes or just take me one baby step closer to this sort of eventual journey that I want to go on. And what you realize is that often there isn't sort of this one big enormous step. You just curatively take lots and lots of little baby steps. And I will say that I did personally find it much, much, much easier doing it with a co-founder. I honestly don't think I would have had the courage or conviction to found something like Olio by myself. Whereas when you've got a partner, suddenly you've got sort of a partner in crime and everything seems much more achievable. That resonates so strongly with my own experiences, but almost from the other side of the coin. Like you, I was going through thoughts of, hang on, what do I want to do? Do I want to start something myself? And I'd been a managing director of two businesses owned by other people, one private and one a subsidiary of a PLC. So I'd done the person in charge, but actually working for others' job. And it took a couple of friends talking to me to just encourage me to take those steps. So if, if I'm ever going to do it, I've got to do it now and have an idea. But the thing I didn't do is I didn't do it with a partner like you did. And I learned a lot also from my younger brother over many years who set up his business with a partner of that ability to have a shoulder to lean on, someone to laugh about the mistakes with. And, and I've often said to people asking me about business startups that if you can do it with a partner and that will work for you, then from someone who hasn't done it, I would really say do it with, do it with somebody else, share the emotional burden as well as the work burden. And so what is it, do you think, about your partnership that makes it work? What do each of you bring that supports each other and makes it better as two than as one alone? So Sasha and I call each other our, our work wives. So that is the extent of, I guess, kind of intimacy and collaboration and longevity of our relationship. It really is like a marriage, which is why you absolutely shouldn't leap into a partnership with someone just because you feel like you don't want to do it alone. It has to be someone that you really, really believe that your relationship can go the full distance. The thing that is the bedrock of mine and Sasha's relationship actually is our friendship. So we were friends for a good 10 years before we founded Olio. And that's been very powerful for us because actually we've both agreed that our friendship is the most important thing. And so we work very, very hard to keep that healthy and working well. And what we find is that we're absolutely 100% aligned on the vision for Olio, the ambition for Olio. And I think kind of our values as individuals, so Olio's company values are inclusive, resourceful, caring, and ambitious. And they absolutely reflect Sasha and I as human beings. So you need to share the same mission, vision, and ambition and values. but where we differ is the specific skill sets that we bring to the table. So I play the CEO role, Sasha plays the COO role, and we complement each other extremely well. We very much divide and conquer. We trust and empower each other. We regularly check in, and it's just an incredibly healthy and productive relationship. And it's such a source of strength for the business as a whole. And it's also really powerful for all of our employees as well. And 
looking back at the roles that you did before you started Olio, what did you take away from that collection of roles and that career journey up to then in terms of the one or two lessons you think, this is what I can use, but also the one or two things you thought, I mustn't do it in the way I've seen it done before. What did you bring with you from that? So I do recall spending much of my corporate career feeling like I was learning through observing what shouldn't be done rather than what should be done. So I do think that is actually quite important. Perhaps you're working in an organization, you're not necessarily enjoying it that much. You're finding it incredibly frustrating. You just switch your mindset to think there's a learning opportunity here. It really can help you get through those very difficult times. I would say that the first half of my corporate career, I was very, very focused on strategy. That was what I had learned at Boston Consulting Group, the strategy consulting firm I worked for. That was what I got additional exposure to doing my MBA at Stanford. But really what became quite game-changing for me in terms of my learning and also my performance during the second half of my corporate career was combining that strategy, one, with operations, two, also with that sort of EQ, people management and people intelligence part of the role. And I learned a huge amount there, actually from peers who really, really inspired me. One sort of in particular, I just learned a huge amount and also my direct reports who gave me really fantastic feedback. In particular, I remember one person. So because I was very young and insecure and wanting to overcompensate, I was just extremely professional the whole time. I can remember a direct report one day just saying to me, I think I just opened up a tiny weeny little bit and showed a little bit of my personality. And she said, Tessa, it was just so amazing getting to see a little bit of the real you and you're going to be so much more of a powerful leader if you allow yourself to be yourself. And that's honestly one of the most important pieces of feedback that I've had to have that courage to just show up as your full self at work. And I think certainly as you get older and you have that benefit of wisdom or perhaps just caring a little bit less, you can show up at work as your full self and you perform better and it's much more enjoyable way to live your life as well. So it's a real win-win. And so moving forward now to Olio, more recently in the last couple of years, you said it's been going for eight years. It's grown hugely, 7 million plus users and subscribers to the app. And well over 110 million portions of food, as well as millions of household items all shared. But I was looking as well at the recent webinar you did to your community where you were very open and honest about the commercial nature of running the business. And one thing struck me within there was a slide you put up to say that at the moment, for every four pounds you spend on Olio, you're earning about a pound in revenue. So how are you both commercially tackling that situation, but also what does that feel like week by week, knowing that you've still got to be striving forward to a commercial break even here? feels very stressful, is the honest answer. And I, I think I'm sort of in a very large boat with lots of other startup founders who have seen the tide change very, very rapidly. So Prior to last year, the model that was the prevailing model in the world of startups really was growth at all costs and get to scale. And a lower importance was placed on ensuring that you built 
a profitable business along the way. It was much more get to scale and then get to profitability. Whereas now, in light of the dramatically changed macroeconomic environment, those two things are flipped around. And now the onus is on you to kind of get to profitability or close to first and then really double down on the scaling. So we've had to do a real shift of emphasis internally, but also externally. And because Olio is a business that has community at its very heart of it, we really are working hard to try and bring that community on the journey with us. And I think back to your point earlier on about, you know, what have you learned from your previous careers? Something that I have learned is the power of transparency. Naturally, I'm a very, very transparent person. I think perhaps because I'm a questioner, I always like to know the why behind everything. And I think a lot of people like to understand the why. And if you sort of allow a vacuum to emerge, then people will fill it with all sorts of stuff that isn't particularly helpful. So our approach really through this difficult transition is to communicate as much as we possibly can. And I think during periods in any founder's journey, in any startup, that point when you need that level of loyalty from people who are working with you, it can only be enhanced by honesty about what is going on, the good and the bad at that particular point. So people know that they can trust you and what you're saying. I think we have a moral responsibility to be transparent when we're operating in such an uncertain world. So that is why both Sasha and I, we have always erred on the side of transparency. Now, the downside of that is it creates a slightly more volatile environment for your employees, right? They get to experience much more of that roller coaster than if you don't communicate. It's absolutely true that ignorance is bliss, but that can then potentially result in some really, really unpleasant shocks. And we, you know, people are smart, they're bright, they get it. And if you just share the context with them, then I think that can be really galvanizing when a group of people can see the enormous opportunity, but they can see the equally enormous challenge, then outlining that for people and then hopefully inspiring and motivating them and giving them the data and information means that they can really get energized by that. And also they can take all those decisions real time, given they've got the full context. We had some work experience students in very recently and a 14-year-old girl, the very first question she asked me when she knew what my role was, do you fire people? Which I thought was an interesting start point, but it got us into a discussion about some of the realities of both being a business leader, but also a business founder. And I noted recently that you obviously had to reduce some of the headcount within the business. You had to make some people who you knew redundant. How did that weigh with you and Sasha? Who handled that? What is the process for you in tackling something like that? So it's a horrific thing to have to do. It's the most unpleasant thing. Um, But equally, it does come with the territory. If you are going to be a, a senior leader in almost any organization over any protracted period of time, because there are ups and downs in the economy, your organization is going to have to respond to that. So I've had to go through this process a couple of times. It is never easy. It makes you feel nauseous to your core. What is also particularly challenging is that as the leader of the organization, you have to go through your own emotional journey 
reconciling the fact that this is something you have to do. And then you need to take your senior leadership team through that emotional journey. So you have the second wave of nausea and supporting them through that. And then you have the next wave, which is communicating it to the organization and those who are affected. So it is extremely, extremely challenging. Sasha and I and everyone who was involved in that process, we leaned really, really heavily on our company values during that period of time. And our third company value is caring. And so our approach was, we know we have to do this. This is in the best interests of the mission and Olio fulfilling its mission. But we're going to do this horrible thing in the best possible way that we can. And that was what we set out to try to do in terms of how we communicated to people, how we dealt with notice periods and stuff like that. And in these definitely challenging times, what have actually been the highlights for you over the last year? What have been the shining moments that, that make you smile now? The honest reality of being an entrepreneur is that you spend very little time focusing on the highlights because you've never gone as fast as you want to as far as you want. And so I spend so 99% of my time looking at what is ahead and what still needs to be done and less than 1% looking back and celebrating the highlights. Now that is a challenge because actually you do need to take that time to pause and reflect with your team and celebrate the highlights. So my mind's a little bit blank because we live so much sort of in the moment right now as I look back over the last six months, think about highlights. But what I will say is we do doing something with such purpose like we do at Olio. We do have these fairly frequent little micro doses of highlights. And that is when we will receive an email, we'll see a post on social media, we'll see a post on our forum where someone is sharing something truly magical and amazing that has happened as a result of them connecting with someone else in their local community to share something. And on multiple occasions, I have absolutely been reduced to tears of happiness through receiving some of that feedback and understanding that real life impact that your work is having with real human beings and of course also the planet as well. I think it's one of the really interesting things I've seen and read about Olio is that whilst obviously you started it as a business very much with a focus on tackling waste, it's turned into something which is very important for a lot of your users' well-being, for their connections, for their community. And that additional benefit's clearly been of huge value to you personally as well as an asset in driving the business forward. Yeah, it's been a really big surprise to Sasha and I, actually, because when we first visualized Olio, we could see there was this enormous problem of trillion dollars of food being thrown away every year. And in UK households, 14 billion pounds sterling of perfectly good food is thrown away every year. And we just imagined this super elegant digital solution that would connect people up. And this marketplace would solve this inefficiency and it would solve this environmental problem. What we very quickly realized within the first couple of weeks of operating Olio is that the real magic of Olio is that doorstep connection. It's the interaction that takes place between two neighbors in real life. And we've since run surveys and 40% of our community say that they've made friends through the app. 66% of people say that sharing has improved their mental health and 75% of people say that sharing has improved their financial well-being as well. So those social impact points are, are just as powerful as the environmental points. But what I should say is that Olio as an organization is 
absolutely laser focused on solving the climate crisis and the social impact is a secondary benefit that we love and adore, but we're really, really focused on kind of solving the waste problem. And in terms of the waste problem, that brings me on to actually something that has been raised by a number of our listeners. We let many of our listeners know who we're having coming on, see if they've got any questions or areas they would love to know more about. And you spoke at a TED Talk, and this was raised by many of them. People are fascinated, I think, once they first listen to a TED Talk and understand it. And in terms of your involvement for that, one of the particular things I've been asked to ask you is about the preparation for that and any experience or tips you've got out of that related to public speaking. And of course, TED Talks are hugely public areas of speaking. So how was that for you? How did you approach it? What did you learn from it? So I was absolutely bowled over to be asked to do a TED Talk. I mean, it's just such an incredible honor. You know, I had to kind of double check, has this really email really been sent to me? But TED are wonderful. They definitely kind of hold your hand on the process. They give you a coach who gives you lots of feedback as you develop your TED Talk. There's so much hard work that goes into crafting the content and the narrative of the talk and also checking every single statement that you make. So last summer, my summer holidays were definitely fairly overwhelmed with, I've got to write my TED Talk. And I think I did sort of seven or eight drafts each time. I thought, I've cracked it, I've done it. And then I'd have to rewrite it. I really struggled on the day, actually, particularly with the dress rehearsal the night before, because there is something very overwhelming about being stood sort of on the TED stage. Also, if you listen to the content of my TED Talk, gravity of that message that I am conveying is very overwhelming. I also felt like I was representing mine and Sasha, our community, our employees, all of our hard work. So I, I put a lot of burden on my shoulders and pretty much melted down <laughs> on the dress rehearsal and had brain freeze, which has never happened to me before. But thankfully, I was then so emotionally exhausted after the dress rehearsal that then on the actual day, I was like, I am done with Ted. I hate Ted. And I just kind of went out and did it and it worked. So hurrah. Well, that's fascinating because that background certainly doesn't come through when you watch it. Any listeners here, I would urge you go and search the TED Talk and watch it. It's not too long. It's less than 15 minutes. But the pressure and the below performance of the dress rehearsal do not come through at all. I think the other thing that's really challenging with a TED Talk is you've kind of done word for word for 12 minutes and there are no notes. There is no auto cue and you haven't even got slides. And normally when I speak, I have a point per slide. So you don't have to remember what you're saying. So it really is the most challenging public speaking thing I've ever had to do. That's for sure. And so in helping us here unwrap your career so others can pick up pieces from what you've experienced and what you've learned, if we could almost take your mind back now to sort of that bright eyed graduate leaving Cambridge, if you could go back and visit her, what advice would you give to her about the things to do and the things not to do with hindsight from where you've gone since then? So I think there are two major learnings I would share with her. So the first one is I regret not being more structured about how I approach my career. So the benefits I've already discussed, if you're open-minded, then you're open to opportunities that you can never have imagined. 
But the downside of that is I never, I was a bit lazy, if I'm being honest. Headhunters reached out to me. I'm naturally curious. I can get interested by pretty much anything. And so I just followed the opportunities that happened to come my way. Retrospectively, I wish that I had spent more time with a pen and a blank sheet of paper and really forced myself through some exercises to figure out what am I really passionate about? What are the problems that I really want to be part of solving in the world? So I would definitely encourage her to spend some time doing that exercise. The, I guess two other things. One, I'd give her two pieces of reassurance. So the first piece of reassurance would be that all the things that you think make you weird and different and an outsider, those are the things that will be your superpower later on in life. And that's just been an incredible kind of 360 experience to watch that happen over my career. And then the other piece of reassurance I would give her is, and I've only just had this realization very recently, I can recall just feeling profoundly uncomfortable in the workplace for most of my working life. And certainly in the early days, I thought it was because I was very young and junior. And retrospectively, I realized absolutely that played a role in that. But for anyone who is female or diverse in any way, you realize that actually a large part of that discomfort comes from the fact that you are having to mold and mask yourself to the prevailing culture and norm, which is very much kind of a white male working environment. And I would encourage her to some degree of masking conformity absolutely is required to progress and to get on. But I would also encourage her to have confidence in her own conviction and in her alternative viewpoints and perspectives and to keep on trying to voice those. In addition to the advice you might send back through time with hindsight to your younger self, especially from your experiences of the last seven or eight years, might you say to somebody who right now is thinking of starting their own tech business, their own solution to a problem that they've identified. What have you learned over the last eight years? And I know you've mentored people as well for what might you pass on to somebody now thinking of getting their own tech business started? So a couple of things. So the first thing which we've already touched on is make sure you find a problem that you are truly passionate about and set about solving that. Secondly, do not fall in love with your idea. The startup world is littered with failed ideas and therefore founders who have been absolutely wed to their idea and have refused to acknowledge that perhaps their idea isn't the best solution to the problem that they're trying to solve. So you just need to stay laser focused on the problem that you are solving. I think the third thing is just get going, start, do something today, and just take those incremental baby steps. The fourth thing related to that sort of just take some steps, in parallel to that, you do need to figure out, is this the right time for me in my life? So to be a startup founder, you have to dramatically curtail your expenditure. You need to cut everything back to the bare bones finance-wise. So if you're single, perhaps that's slightly easier. But if you've got a family, you need to take sort of the family unit on that journey of cutting everything back to the bare bones. You need to do that Excel spreadsheet exercise to figure out how much runway 
you financially have to have a crack at this. For people who are working, I would say keep working for as long as you can before you cut off the umbilical cord of a monthly paycheck. And then the final thing really is just to enjoy the ride because I do think it's very easy to be fixated on the destination and really entrepreneurship is all about the ride. So you have to enjoy the ride. You have to enjoy the ups and the downs. You need to really harness that sort of glass half full mentality always and make sure you're doing it ideally with a partner whose company you really, really enjoy. I think there's so much out of that. Somebody can say it's little goosebumps really going for me with some of the recollections of starting a business, especially going from having had myself and my wife on two managing director level salaries and me going from that to nothing and her going then on maternity leave with our third child. So we went from two MD salaries to one very basic maternity leave pay and savings dwindle pretty quickly when that happens. So that level of preparation. And it does have a really gnarly impact on your social life because honestly, you're suddenly having to say, I'm really sorry, we cannot afford to do X, Y, and Z. So you definitely need to have those conversations with your friendship group as well to figure out how you're going to navigate these next couple of years. Tessa, I think this has just been a fascinating conversation for anybody thinking about their career direction, for anybody thinking about starting their own business, what you've said with honesty about the importance of having a partner, if you can have one, about laying down your values and having them clear and sticking to them, about looking for a problem that you're passionate about solving. All of those, if you get that into your mind, can just increase your chance of taking the right direction and success. And especially what you said there about enjoying the ride. I think it's hard to enjoy all of the ride, but you do have to think that is what is going to happen. Therefore, if what I really want is regular, safe growth, it may not be the right step for you, but it's certainly one that's going to give you a buzz probably, and hopefully mostly in a positive manner. Now, one of the things we always like to do just really to finish off is to keep passing on this baton of careers experience and careers stories. So if there's one person we could ask you to think about, say, who should we get on here whose career journey, whose experience would be really valuable for those who are starting out in their careers? Who might that be? I would wholeheartedly recommend Natasha Christie Miller. So she was the peer that I referred to earlier on from whom I learned such an enormous amount, in particular around the EQ and the people management side of things. She's a wonderful leader. She's been an incredible CEO for many years and really, really inspiring and a larger than life character. So I'm sure you and your audience will love speaking with her and listening to her. Brilliant. Tessa, thank you so much for coming on, for unwrapping your career and helping us all learn from it. It's been wonderful to, to have you on the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast is sponsored by We Are Futures. To find out more about We Are Futures, and how we can introduce your brand, business, or organization to the mass markets of tomorrow, visit www.wearefutures.com. Make sure to search for Careers Unwrapped in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Remember to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. 
On behalf of the team here at We Are Futures, thanks for listening.